0: So this morning, we are starting a, a class called Walking with Christ. Ah, it works good. Walking with Christ is supposed to be practical theology, theology that you can apply to you, to your everyday life. And the nice thing about this is once you apply it to you, you can then apply it to somebody else and help somebody else get through it. So that's the nice thing about practical theology. Some of the topics we're going to cover, uh, we're going to cover today psychology and our sin why are we talking about psychology if we're going to talk about theology? Because in the modern church, people want to deal with their sin using psychology rather than using scripture, and so we're going to ask the question, is psychology really the best answer for your, your sin and the problems associated with it? We're also going to talk about the heart. What is it? Is it the thing that Cupid shoots with an arrow, the thing that pumps blood? What does it do? How does it work? Why do we have it? We're going to talk about the conscience. Should the conscience really be your guide? We're going to talk about guilt guilt. Is there a such thing as false guilt? And if there is, what do you do about it? And then finally, forgiveness. And don't dismiss that last one. If a new Christian came to you and said, I have a problem, someone sinned against me, I need to forgive them, I just don't know how to do it. Do you have a good biblical answer for them? Hopefully by the end of this class you will. So let's get started. We're going to talk about psychology this morning. Now, when we're talking about psychology, we need to understand that the world that we live in is a psychologized world. Everybody knows somebody who has a mental disorder. It used to be if you had a mental disorder, you hid it and you didn't tell anyone. Now everybody has a mental disorder. And you've heard the names. Anxiety, depression, bipolar, attention deficit disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive communication disorder, gender dysphoria, kleptomaniac, psychotic, uh, psychotic disorder, Whole bunch of different disorders. CDC says that 25% of American adults currently have a mental disorder. Another study put that up to 45 million are dealing with a serious mental disorder. And if you don't have one, don't worry. The CDC says that 50% of American adults will develop one sometime in their lifetime. So they're optimistic. But I bring that up because we can't dismiss the problem. We can't just push it off, and say, well, that's bogus. We don't have to worry about it. The people who have depression are actually struggling. And the reason why it matters to us is because it used to be when a person struggled with depression or some other behavior problem, they went to the church and got it resolved. Now the church exports them to a psychiatrist or a psychologist under the presumption that psychology is science. And these people have a illness that needs to be treated. So they say, well, the church and the Bible can't do anything for you, so go to psychology, and psychology can solve your problem. Dr. Ed Berkeley said most pastors today refer their parishioners to psychologists and psychiatrists for treatment for serious emotional and behavioral disorders. Why would they do this? He says, the pastors believe that churches can help parishioners with minor problems, but serious mental disorders need to be referred to a professional counselor. Don't take my word for it. Let's listen to someone a little bit smarter than me. Dr. Oh, wait, let me get to my main points first. Two arguments. First, psychology and your Christian faith are contradictory. You can't hold both. You can't be a heavenly devil. You can't have a kosher hog. You can't have a pro-life abortionist. And you cannot have a Christian psychologist. They are contradictory terms. They cannot both be true. Secondly, the majority of psychology is not scientific. Psychology is not scientific. Psychiatry has some scientific aspects to it, but psychology doesn't. Why is that important? Because that's the very reason why they say the church shouldn't resolve it. Psychology should resolve the problem because it's a matter of science. Now let's listen to some people smarter than me. Dr. William Kilpatrick, associate professor of psychology at Boston College, said psychology and religion are competing faiths. If you seriously hold to one set of values, you will logically have to reject the other. True Christianity does not mix well with psychology. When you try to mix them, you often end up with a watered-down Christianity instead of a Christianized psychology. It's one or the other. You can't have both. That's not Frank saying that. That's the professor of psychology saying that. One contradicts the other. Paul Witz, associate professor of psychology at New York University, in his book Psychology as Religion, Psychology has become more a sentiment than a science and is now part of the problem of modern life rather than part of its resolution. Psychology has become a religion, in particular a form of secular humanism based on the worship of self. Notice these professors are not referring to psychology as science. They're calling it a religion. It's a faith. Even a journalist looked at the problem. Martin Gross wrote this, It is now obvious that most tenets of the psychological society, including psychotherapy, are Western man's disguise for a new spirituality. It is the educated person's opportunity to practice religion under the cloak of science. It enables us to call on occult powers of healing while appeasing our Western need for rational underpinning. It makes little difference that each of the psychotherapies has a different faith. Now, psychology clearly defines itself as being a form of science. When you ask psychologists what is psychology, they'll tell you it's the scientific study of mental health and behavior. So what I'd like to do this morning is I want to talk to you a little bit about science, and then we'll compare it to psychology and see just how scientific psychology really is. Okay? Science works by trying to explain reality, and it explains reality by examining samples of reality. If I am a geologist and I want to study a mountain and I want to understand how that mountain formed, I'm going to go and study the mountain. And that begins by observing the mountain, looking at it. Just like we do in Scripture, we look at Scripture and we just make observations, the same thing. I'm going to look at the shape of the mountain. I'm going to look at the color of the rocks. I'm going to look at how the sediments lie. I'm going to maybe get in a helicopter and fly around the mountain and see the topography around it. I'm going to make a whole bunch of observations, Then I'm going to take samples of the mountain, little rocks. I'm not going to pick up the whole mountain and take it back to the lab. I'm just going to take samples of that mountain, and I'm going to take them back to the lab, and I'm going to form more observations. The observations are intended so that I can make a hypothesis. The hypothesis is an educated guess. Now, it's not a correct Now, every hypothesis has to be specific. You can't just give a random hypothesis. The key factor to a hypothesis is it has to be verifiable. You have to be able to falsify it. You have to be able to either prove it to be true or you have to be able to prove it to be false. If I say as a hypothesis, one million angels can dance on the tip of a pin, what's wrong with it? You can't prove it either way. So when I form my hypothesis, it has to be provable. Now once I form the hypothesis, that's not good enough. I have to keep going, right? I actually have to prove my assertion. So I'm going to conduct experiments, I'm going to to do tests. And these tests are going to provide me objective evidence, objective data that will tell me whether or not my hypothesis is true. And based on those tests, I'm going to give an explanation for the reality of the mountain. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Now, regardless of how good my tests are, regardless of how thorough of a scientist I am, I will never be able to say with certainty what formed the mountain. Certainty requires that I look at all the factors, factors I can't see. The best I will be able to say is that in all probability, X is true when all of these factors are present. If I could examine every factor and every possibility and every little piece of the mountain, I could give certainty. But that's physically impossible. So science cannot be absolutely certain. And we're OK with this. Science helps you fly, right? 6,000 years of human history, only in the last 100 where have been able to fly. Now, at least you should know, when you get in the airplane, it's not guaranteed the plane's going to make it off the ground. And once it's in the air, it's not a guaranteed, it's not a certainty that the plane's going to make it back to the ground. The pilot in the back is laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Now, here's the thing, <laughs> here's the thing. Yes, the plane is not guaranteed to make it back to the ground. It's not a 100% guarantee. However, it is statistically probable that it's going to make it back to the ground. And you might say, well, it's guaranteed to make it to the ground, it's certain to make it to the ground, we're just not sure what condition it's going to be in. Even science won't affirm that. They'll say it's more than likely to return to the ground, but we can't examine all the possibilities, so we can't be certain. Okay? Maybe I should give you that one. Karl Popper, in his book, Science, Theory, and Falsifiability, says this, Psychological theories of human behavior, though posing as sciences, had in fact more in common with primitive myths than with science. They contain most interesting psychological suggestions, but not in testable forms. That last sentence is the key there. They are not in testable forms. They cannot be proven. Take a little thought journey with me. You've been feeling sick lately, physically sick, nausea, headache, dizziness. So you go to your medical doctor, and you sit down with your doctor for an hour, and you explain all of your symptoms, and your doctor asks you a whole bunch of questions. But in that hour-long conversation, your doctor never once does any physical test He doesn't blind you with his little flashlight while he looks in your eyes, he doesn't check your ears, he doesn't take your temperature, he doesn't listen to your heartbeat or your breathing, he doesn't give you a CAT scan, an MRI, a sonogram, he doesn't draw blood, he doesn't even smack you in the knee with his little hammer. He does no physical test. But at the end of his hour-long conversation, he looks you in the eye and says, you have a cancerous tumor on your liver, and we need to begin chemotherapy immediately. How many of you are okay with the diagnosis? Well, he's a medical professional. Don't you believe him? What's the matter? You don't believe in science? What's wrong? What's wrong? He didn't prove it. He didn't do a test. Now, if he's a real scientist, if he's a real doctor, that doctor will be able to turn around and say, fine, I understand. Let me draw some blood. We're going to schedule you for an MRI or an X-ray. I'm going to show you a picture of the tumor. I'm going to show you in your blood work that there's an actual problem here. Then we're going to biopsy the tumor, I'm going to test that, and I'm going to show you it's cancer. And then he's going to give you a probability of survival, one in 10, or nine in 10, right? But he's not going to say with certainty, this is what's going to happen. Change the scenario just a little bit. Now you're not dealing with a physical physical sickness, now you've been feeling a little blue and your blue feelings have resulted in you shedding responsibilities at home. And then you started shedding responsibilities at work, and now all you really want to do is just lay in bed, eat Cheetos, and watch soap operas. And so as your friends tell you, look, there's something wrong with you, you've got to go get some help. So you go see the psychologist. You sit down with the psychologist for an hour, and you begin telling the psychologist all of the problems and all of your symptoms. After one hour, he has done absolutely no test. He has not scanned your brain, no blood tests, nothing. But after one hour, he looks you in the eye and says, your problem is you have a very serious mental illness, and we need to begin treatment immediately with a psychotropic medication. How many of you are okay with the diagnosis? There's the difference. The psychologist is not required to prove his diagnosis. And in the majority of cases, even a psychiatrist will not be able to prove the diagnosis. There is no medical test that'll prove it. This is why Dr. John Street said this, much of the espoused scientific evidence is no better than opinion research. Psychology's relationship to natural sciences is like margarine's relationship to real butter. Margarine looks and spreads like the real thing, but anyone who tastes it can tell the difference. When you actually look at psychology and you compare it to science, there is a vast difference between the two. Now, at the heart of psychology is something that's going to conflict with your Christian faith, that you're going to have to decide, am I going to accept what psychology says or am I going to accept what Scripture says? And at the heart of it is a faulty presupposition. Remember, a presupposition is what we come to the table with. It's a belief that we have When we get to the table, we come to the table with a presupposition. This is the word of God. This is what God has said. God is real. Those are presuppositions. At the heart of psychology is the presupposition that you are an evolved animal. That all evolution is true. You are not made in the image of God according to the psychologists. And they build all of their methodologies off this one major presupposition. This goes all the way back to the father of modern psychology, Sigmund Freud, who was an avid Darwinist. Now, if you want to see where bad presuppositions lead, just look at what Sigmund Freud had to say about man. And as I show you this, I just want you to ask the question: Is this what the Bible says about you? Sigmund Freud said there are three basic aspects of the human being: the id, the superego and the ego. Remember, you're an animal. The id is your instinctual drives. These are the drives and the desires that you have from your evolution, from millions of years of evolution. You have these drives and desires, and it's just natural for you to want to and for you to live according to these desires. Then there's the superego. The superego is society and their rules, and they tell you how you're supposed to live and the way you're supposed to live. And then you have the ego, and that's the part of you that balances these two out. That's the part of you that says, well, these are my desires, so I'm going to try to live these out, and then I'm going to try to make the superego happy. Now, Freud said that all of your problems, all of your sin, all of your imperfections come from a conflict between the id, your instinctual drives, and the superego, i.e., society and their rules. And what he said was, from a very young age, society implements a reward-consequence system. When you behave the way society wants you to behave, they give you a little pat on the back, and they say, hey, good job, and they make you feel good about yourself. But when you don't behave the way they want you to, when you behave according to your instinctual drives, your id, then they make you feel guilty about it. And you begin to learn from a very young age, I don't want to behave according to my desires, because then I'm going to feel guilty. So I'm going to do everything I can to appease the superego, to make the, the society happy. And what you end up doing is suppressing your id. And Freud said that was your biggest problem. You have a suppressed id. And psychotherapy's goal was to free the id, to free you to live out your instinctual drives and desires. Now, because of this, he says, therefore, your problems, your sin, your imperfections, they're not your fault. It's not your fault. You are a victim. This is being done to you. This is happening from outside of you. This is beyond your control. And if you have any sense of guilt over living out your instinctual drives and desires, if you experience that feeling of guilt, that's not real. That's false guilt. That's society forcing their expectations and forcing their morality onto you. But you shouldn't have to pay attention to that. So, who is to blame? Who did Freud blame for your problems, for your mental health issues, for your sin, as we would call it? Well, the superego, of course. That's right, society, your family, religion, your church, all the people around you. They're the ones who have imprisoned your id. They're the ones who have kept you from living according to your desires. They're the ones who make you feel guilty. I mean, come on. You are an animal after all. Right? According to Freud? Living according to your desires is what you should do. We don't make deer feel guilty for acting like deer, do we? Why should you feel guilty? Now, that's Freud's position, and I would give you more of these different positions, but I can't, because in the United States alone, there's 250 to 300 different views of man, his problems, and the solutions. 250 different competing psychological methodologies used to try to help you. These are just a few, you may not be able to read them. 250 to 300, imagine if you were going in for heart surgery. And one surgeon said, this is the right way to do it, this is your problem, this is how I'm going to fix it. And the next surgeon said, no, 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 no. that guy's wrong. You need to listen to me. This is how you do heart surgery, this is your problem, this is how you fix it. And then another guy shows up, no, 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 both those guys are wrong, listen to me. And you do that 250 times over, how many of you are ready for heart surgery? Dr. Eve Fuller Torrey said... There are several different schools within this general group, including Orthodox Freudian, Neo-Freudian, Union, and Alderian. Each of these schools is further broken down into sub-schools. Uh, the new Freudians are divided into followers of Karen Horney, Heinrich Fromm, Harry Sacks Sullivan, and Frieda Fromm-Reichmann. Many of these schools have sub-schools, and they have their own training institutes. The outcome is a panorama of parochialism and provincialism, not seen since medieval Europe. They're all fighting back and forth, competing with one another, saying, I'm right, they're wrong, you need to listen to me. And the diagnosis that you're going to get is dependent upon what kind of psychologist you happen to go to. And the solution they recommend is also dependent upon the kind of psycho- psychologist that you go to. And if you go to the, a different one, they're going to say something different. Now, we've been talking about psychology from like a 30,000-foot flyover, right? Very broad, very vague. So I want to just show you one psychological disorder. One mental illness. You all know what it is. you all know this one. It's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now because everybody has heard of this, I need to say this. One, I'm not a doctor and I do not play one on television. Which means if you're going to ask me, should I take medication? Should I give my children medication? Should I stop medication? I can't answer your question. A doctor can answer it. So see your family doctor and he can answer that question for you. Let's talk about attention, but just by a show of hands. How many of you know someone, not you, but you know someone, who has been diagnosed with this condition? Can you raise your hand? All right, quite a few people. So this isn't new. This is considered to be one of the most overdiagnosed conditions in America. The CDC, according to their website, in 2016 said 6.1 million children had been diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Now, I want you to notice the age range, 2 to 17. Their website further said that between the ages of 2 and 5, there are 388,000 children who have been diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Just keep that in mind because that's going to become relevant later. Two to five, okay? Now, out of the 6.1 million children who have been diagnosed with this condition, 62% are being treated with medication. You guys have heard of Ritalin, Adderall? Very powerful stuff. Psychiatrist Peter Bregan wrote this. Hyperactivity is the most frequent justification for drugging children. At first, psychiatrists called hyperactivity a brain disease. When no brain disease could be found, they changed it to minimal brain disease. When no minimal brain disease could be found, the profession transformed the concept into minimal brain dysfunction. When no minimal brain dysfunction could be demonstrated, the label became attention deficit disorder. Now it's just assumed to be a real disease regardless of the failure to prove it. Biochemical imbalance is the code word, but there's no more evidence for that than there is for actual brain disease. Now, you remember we talked about science at the beginning, and we said science starts with an observation. It goes to a hypothesis. The hypothesis then must be proven with tests. So what was the hypothesis? They observed behavior of children. They saw them acting hyperactive. They seemed to have more energy. They made an observation. They then formed a hypothesis. The hypothesis was this must be the result of a brain disease. So they went to test for brain disease, and they couldn't prove brain disease. So they changed the hypothesis. Perfectly legal in science to change your hypothesis. And they said, "Okay, it's not a brain disease. It must be minimal brain disease. And then they went and tested that. Well, they couldn't find that either. Okay, so it's not a brain disease, it's not minimal brain disease, it must be minimal brain dysfunction. And they went to test that, and they couldn't prove that either. And the psychiatrist says, it's now just assumed to be a brain disease. We can't prove it. Now he said, biochemical imbalance is the code word. If you go to a psychiatrist and are diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, you will hear something like this. You have a serotonin deficiency in your prefrontal cortex. I just remind you, he has not performed a single test, and he will make that conclusion. Moreover, they can't prove chemical imbalance. They have yet to find any evidence that a chemical imbalance causes this. Do you know why they say it's a chemical imbalance? They say that because if they stick chemicals in your brain through medication, it seems to change your behavior, so they assume they're fixing the problem. But they can't prove it. Uh, Robert Reed, John Mag, and Stanley Voss, in an article published in *Exceptional Children*, wrote this: "Considerable efforts have been expended to find a biological etiology of ADHD, but decades of research in ADHD etiology have been inconclusive and often contradictory." Now, if you're like me, you read that sentence and you said, "Etiology? I didn't know what it meant, so I had to look it up." Etiology is a fancy way of saying a cause. They have been looking for a biological cause to this condition and they can't find one. They said considerable efforts have been expended. They've been doing a lot of work trying to prove this disease actually exists and they can't prove it. Now, if you want to make a diagnosis of a mental health disorder, there's one book you have to use. Does anyone know what that book is? It's the Psychiatric Bible. The DSM, yeah, there is one book, I have it on the car, I'll bring it up so you can see it. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. All mental disorders are diagnosed according to this book. You are not allowed to make a diagnosis without this book. The book tells you what the, what the condition is, what the symptoms are, what you need for a diagnosis, how you can treat the condition. You cannot make a diagnosis without it. This book has five versions, five editions. With each new edition, the previous ones become obsolete. We are now on the DSM-5. But I'd like to show you what the DSM-4 said real quick regarding ADHD. Quote, there are no laboratory tests that have been established as diagnostic in the clinical assessment of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. If you get diagnosed with ADHD by a psychiatrist or a psychologist and then you go to your family doctor and say, I have been diagnosed with a mental illness, I would like you to perform tests and I would like you to prove it to me. There is no test that he can perform to prove or validate the diagnosis. All you have is the assertion of the psychologist, there is no test, and you might say, well Frank, you you just said we're on the DSM-5, but you're quoting the DSM-4. What does the DSM-5 say? No biological marker is diagnostic for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. As a group, compared with peers, children with ADHD display increased slow-wave electroencephalograms, reduced total brain volume on magnetic resonance imaging, and possibly a delay in posterior to anterior cortical maturation. But these findings are not diagnostic. They're not diagnostic because children without ADHD have the same thing. So, the two most recent psychiatric Bibles, the DSM 4 and the DSM 5, both will tell you we can't prove this with biology. If you get cancer, we can prove that. If you have the flu, we can prove that. If you get Ebola, we can prove that. We cannot prove ADHD. The logical question here is, well, if you can't prove it, if there's no test, if there's no biological indicator, how in the world do you make a diagnosis? Diagnostic criterion for ADHD. Now, you need to understand there's two halves to this condition. There's the attention deficit, which is inattentive, you have trouble paying attention, and then there's the hyperactive side. Children usually have both. They'll usually get diagnosed with inattention and hyperactivity. Adults usually just have inattention. They are diagnosed separately. They both have separate uh, criterion for diagnosis. These are a few of the requirements for proving inattention. Now, remember, we said there are children between the ages of two and five. Parents in the room who have had a two-year-old in the house, please raise your hand. I want to hear from you after you read these, okay? <laughs> I don't have kids, so I'm going to let you decide. Just think about your two-year-old when you hear this. Here's, the, here's what you need, six or more of these. Here we go. Often fails to give close attention to detail. Why are you laughing? Often has difficulty sustaining attention. Often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly. Often does not follow through on instructions and fails to finish schoolwork. Often has difficulty organizing tasks and activities. Often avoids dislikes or is reluctant to engage in tasks that require sustained mental effort. Often loses things necessary for tasks or activities. Okay, parents, who have two-year-olds, what do you think? It sounds, like a yeah. it sounds like a two-year-old. This is what you expect. So how in the world do you diagnose a two-year-old with mental illness based off this? I don't know either because there's no laboratory test to prove it. It sounds like a teenager. (laughs) Yeah. There's adults, there's 40-year-olds who act like this, right? But we're not going to say they have a mental disorder. What's the other thing I want you to notice? What do you notice about this? Obviously, there's nothing biological here. You know, they're not talking about chemical levels. What else do you notice about these? Often, okay, it's repeated behavior. What else? I'm looking for something very basic. It's physical. physical. She's on it. She's at it. What they all have in common, they are all behaviors. Here's a scary little secret. I used to work in juvenile corrections. That's not the secret. At the facility, we had psychiatrists and psychologists who worked with the kids. When they wanted to know if a kid had Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, the psychiatrist did not follow the kid around. It wasn't the psychiatrist or the counselor who determined if this child met the conditions for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. You know who it was? It was corrections officers like me, who have absolutely no psychological training. And what they would do is they would hand us a form and we would subjectively assess the child's behavior. Does the child appear to be having trouble paying attention? Rate it on a scale of one to five. Teachers determine this. Parents determine this. And guess what? If you go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist and you tell him you have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, guess what he's going to do? He's going to depend on your subjective assessment of your symptoms to determine if you have this condition. Now, would you like that to be what your doctor does for an actual health problem? And you might say, I think we've already heard it. Well, look, I understand there's no science behind this. I understand there's no medical proof of it. But here's my problem, my 15-year-old still behaves this way. I can't get him to pay attention. He loses everything. His room looks like a tornado just blew through. What do I do? I mean, after all, the Bible says absolutely nothing about attention deficit disorder because I know I looked. It's not there. So what is the church going to do for someone who has this condition if the Bible doesn't talk about it? What are we supposed to do about it? Well, you're right. The Bible doesn't talk about attention deficit disorder. But it says a lot about behavior. You take every one of those behaviors, You open up the Word of God, and you look what the Word of God says about that behavior. And you address the behavior like you do any other behavior. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, like the majority of psychological illnesses in the DSM, is nothing more than a grouping of behaviors. They observe behaviors, they've lumped them together, and they've given them a very scientific-sounding name. But it is still nothing more than behavior behavior. That's what the condition is. Now, psychology doesn't understand who man is. That's their problem. We looked at what Sigmund Freud said about man. Does anyone think that was biblical? They don't have a right understanding of who man is, they don't understand where man's problems come from, and they will never be able to give you a correct solution to those problems. But we do. The creator has told us who we are. The creator has told us what our problems are, and he has given us a means to deal with that problem. The church is more than capable. You are more than capable, capable of dealing with this. If you have been diagnosed or you know someone in your family who has, you can deal with this at home and in the church. Now, Craig, if I did you guys do anthropology recently? Okay, so I'm not going to rehash that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you negative theology. I'm going to tell you what man is not. And you'll see the connection to psychology in just a moment. Let's talk about what man is not. First, man is not a victim. You are not the result of random biological and chemical processes. Your problems, your sin do not result from random biological chemical processes. And because your problems don't originate from there, they cannot be resolved by changing biology or chemistry. That's not where your sin comes from. Furthermore, you are not a victim of society. You are not a victim of their expectations, of their rules, of their false guilt. You are not a victim. This one might hurt. You are not controlled by a subconscious. In fact, modern psychology is moving away from the idea of a subconscious and starting to say that you don't have one. I'm glad they're catching on. The Bible's been saying that for a couple thousand years. You are either conscious or unconscious. There is not some secret part of your brain that's functioning and causing you to act, behave, and speak in a way that you have no control over, that you need some expert, some genius to come in and start digging around in to fix your problems. You do not have a subconscious. You are not controlled by one. Third, man is not an animal. If you would open your Bibles, it's been a while, we need to get into the Word. Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, there are some Christians who say they can be Christian and embrace psychology at the same time, right? Psychology says you are an animal. Well, the Word of God has something to say about animals. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter is talking about false teachers, and he describes and compares false teachers to animals. Here's what he says, but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. Stop right there. He's going to continue the conversation about the false teachers. But in order to make the metaphor work by calling them animals, he has to explain a little bit about animals. First, the Greek word that he uses here is only used in one of two ways in Scripture. First, it's used as a metaphor for for, uh, false teachers. Secondly, it's used to describe actual animals. It is never in Scripture applied to humans in general. A human being is never referred to as this, other than in a metaphor. Okay. Notice what Peter says. They are born as creatures of instinct. Instinct is the natural programming that God has put in these creatures for them to be able to function and survive in the world. Think of it like computer programming. Your computer is designed to do certain things. And what it can do is based on what it's programmed to do. Your computer cannot make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's not programmed to do that. Animals are the same way. They are programmed. They have programming from God. No one has to teach a monkey how to climb a tree. No one has to teach the antelope to eat grass and not rabbits. No one has to teach the lion to eat antelopes and not grass. They do it naturally. This is what they're programmed to do. Now, we live in South Texas. You're in the hill country. Late at night when it's cool, you're driving down the road. Certain animals like to walk out in front of you. What are some of those animals that'll walk out in front of your car? Deer. Now, here's my question. When the deer walks out into the road, and the light from your headlights makes contact with a deer, what does he do? He stops dead in his tracks, right? Now, this is just me musing, so I might be wrong, but I think I know why he stops. Because his programming is, when he hears a sound, he stops to see if it's a predator. He stops, so maybe the predator won't see him. And he looks around for the predator. If it's a mountain lion, he runs. If it's a human, he runs. But his programming doesn't include headlights. (laughs) It doesn't include Ford F-150s or Mack trucks. And so he sees it, and he has no clue what he's supposed to do. And so he stays there trying to figure out what this thing is. But he doesn't have the capacity to reason his way out of it. He can't look at that Mack truck and go, "Okay, that thing's really big, it seems to be moving really fast, and I'm in its way. And if it hits me, I'm in trouble. He can't reason. Notice what Peter says. But these like what? Unreasoning animals. They don't have the capacity for reason. They can't think through the problem. Now, this one's going to hurt. Notice also what he says. Born as creatures of instinct to be what? To be captured and killed. All animals on this planet have two purposes. This includes Fido and Fluffy. I'm sorry. Okay, They have two purposes. First, they're here to bring glory to God. You see the animals, you say, wow, what an amazing God we have, right? The second purpose, they are here for your food supply. I'm not recommending you eat Fido and Fluffy. I'm just saying they're here for your food supply. Killing a deer is not murder. It's lunch, okay? No, you are not. Well, let me go here. That's what Peter says about animals. Now, let me ask you, is anyone willing to affirm that about themselves? Are you an animal according to Peter's definition? Are you a creature of of instinct who goes off programming, who is incapable of thinking through a problem, who is incapable of reasoning? Are you here to be the food supply of someone else? Well, if you hold psychology, and you're consistent in holding it, and you hold to Christianity, you have to affirm you're an animal. And if you're a Christian, you have to affirm what the Bible says is true. True. Do you see why you have a problem? Psychology and the Christian faith do not mix. When you look at what Scripture says about man, it does not say that we are animals. What does it say about man? The Danger of using a mouse. We are made in the image of God. You are given some of God's communicable attributes. Reason happens to be one of them. Your existence here points back to him. It is not true of any other creature on this planet. It is not true of deer. And because you were made in the image of God, taking your life is a violation of God's law. Taking the life of a deer is exactly what he put it here for. You were made in the image of God. Now because you're a creature of God that means you are also not autonomous. Psychology would have you believe you're an autonomous creature. That the world and the universe was all designed for you. And the most important thing for you, according to psychology, is that you live out your desires as the animal that you are. Is that what Scripture says? Scripture says you are under the authority of God, that you are supposed to obey what God says. This goes all the way back to the very first man, Adam, who had the direct counsel of God, right? He walked with God, God spoke with him, God told him what he could and could not do. And then Adam and Eve, they messed it up. And they said, well, you know, God, we we really don't like your rules. We don't like this not being able to eat from this one tree. And this little serpent over here, he seems to have a better idea. Because that tree, it even says of Eve, it was good for food. She was desirous. And her wants. And so Satan shows up and sows a little bit of doubt. Did God really say you couldn't eat from that tree? And Eve turns around and distorts what God says. And she turns around and says, well, he said we can't even touch the tree. It's not what he said. And then Satan comes in and flat out just denies what God said. Now the consequences of this are pretty severe. What was the consequence of sin? Death. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall. Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. By the way, the word there for kill, you can't spiritualize it. It's the Hebrew word used for slaughtering an animal and sacrifice. Cain slaughtered his brother. Genesis chapter 5, it's a genealogy. It's the only genealogy in Scripture that does not list a single birth. It lists all the deaths of men. And then you get to Genesis chapter 6, and you say, well, it's improving in Genesis chapter 6. And you get to the story of the Tower of Babel, and God, instead of looking at man and saying, it is good, he looks at man And this is what we find. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I pointed this out to somebody one time and they looked at me and said, yes, but that doesn't apply to us anymore. And here's their logic. In Genesis chapter 6, God says this about the people at the Tower of Babel. Later he says that Noah was righteous and found favor in the eyes of God. And Noah and his family in Genesis chapter 7 were preserved from the flood, and everyone else, all those evil, wicked people, all of them died. And in Genesis chapter 8, Noah gets off the ark. He and his family are the only ones remaining. Therefore, we are all righteous. Bad hermeneutics, right? But here's where it really gets bad. Because in Genesis chapter 8, when Noah gets off the ark, he makes an offering to God. And God says... I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Who's he talking about? Everybody. And here we have another problem with psychology. Psychology says your problems are biological, they are chemical, they're the result of other people, they're the result of society. And God says your sin, your wickedness comes from where? Your own heart. Your problem is not someone outside of you. It's not the guy down the street. It's not your spouse. My problem is not you or anyone else. My biggest problem is me and my own wicked heart. It's so bad. Even Jesus said this in Mark seven twenty one. He says, for from within, from out of the heart, proceed evil thoughts. And then he lists all the sins. You can lock yourself in a monastery and you still have the same problem. You can cut yourself off from all the world and all their expectations and you still have the same problem. Changing the outside, changing chemical, your biology, putting medication in your brain doesn't change the reality that you have a sinful heart. And it's so bad, God said, look, I can't even use what you have. I have to give you a new one. We've got to take the old heart of stone out and give you a new one. What's interesting is when you go through the Old Testament... This command for a new heart started with God telling Israel, you circumcise your heart. You get rid of the hard exterior. And when they didn't do it, God changed it. And he gets to Ezekiel 36 and he says, I will give you a new heart. It's the Old Testament picture of regeneration, of being a new creature. Now when we talk about the heart, we, we have some misconceptions about the heart. We don't. we have some funny ideas on what the heart is. We really don't get it. We look at the heart, we hear the heart, and we think of like Valentine's Day, you know, a, a red box full of chocolate shaped like a heart. We think of the heart, we think of emotion and passion and, and love. That's what we think of when we think of the heart, but that is not the picture that Scripture paints. Jay Adams says the word heart conjures up visions of cherry-cheeked cherubs, lace doilies, and pink paper hearts. And yes, emotions are a part of the heart, but that is not the primary thing that the scriptures are referring to. In scripture the heart primarily deals with your intellect. It deals with your mind. Let's look at some verses here. Job 12:24. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in pathless waste. The word for intelligence here, it's the word lev it means heart. Intelligence is associated to the heart. Hosea 7.11, so Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. Intelligence, sense, rational thought, both those words, there are heart. The heart is connected to your intelligence with your sense. New Testament, Jesus but Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Why are you thinking the way you are? 2 Corinthians 9, 7 Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Those two words there are the Greek word "cardia." It's where we get the English word cardiac. It literally means your heart. The heart is connected to reason. It's connected to intelligence. It's connected to your thoughts. J. Adams sums up the functioning of the heart here. In the Bible, human beings are said to talk, reason, plan, understand, think, doubt, perceive, make mistakes, purpose, intend, etc. in their hearts. Your heart is very busy. You can say this, well... The heart is also the seat of intention and desire. This is where you make plans. This is where you purpose. This is where your desires come from. Proverbs 19.21 Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. You plan in your heart. Your heart is connected to your thought life. And it's extremely important in your walk. This is what the psychologist will not deal with. I was listening. How many of you have heard of Dr. Jordan Peterson? Anybody heard of him? He's a clinical psychologist. He's real popular these days on YouTube for his politics. But he was doing a Q&A, and a man wrote to him, and this is what he said. I have a desire to have a relationship with someone other than my wife, but I really don't want to. What should I do? He's talking about not what he's done. He's talking about his desire. And Dr. Peterson responded with, have your wife pretend to be somebody else. But from a psychological perspective, that's perfectly rational because his desires are his natural instinct. If it's in your head, if it's in your thought life, it's still sinful. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence you can translate that another way watch over your thought life with all diligence you need to be careful about what's going in your on in your heart you can define the heart another way the heart is the inner life it's the life that you live before god that nobody else can see first peter three verse four but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit There is a hidden person, a person others cannot see. You can sit in this church, and you can be completely different on the inside than who you are and what you show to the people around you. J. Adams, one more time. Plainly then, the heart in the Bible is the inner life that one lives before God and himself, a life that is unknown by others because it is hidden from them. You can actually sin in your heart. When Jesus talked about the sin of adultery, he talked about it in the heart. And you know what he called it? Adultery. He said, If you look after a woman and lust after her, you have committed adultery. Well, I got ahead of myself again. Okay, yeah. Heart sins, they're hidden. Sorry. All right. I want to show this to you this little graphic. Think of your heart as the control center, this is the CPU. It controls everything. The heart is your mind. Your mind is the control center. And what you put in your mind and what you keep in your mind determines what comes out of it. So if you fixate your mind on yourself, on your desires, your wants, your dreams, your ambition, your lust, you fixate on the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, you will produce bad fruit. Jesus said what's in your heart will come out. Go the other way. You do what the Bible says and you focus your thoughts on Christ. You do what Paul said and you think on the things above. You let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. For you're like David who said I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not. Or you're like the righteous man of Psalm 1 whose delight was in what? The law of the Lord. Or you're like what Joshua was told to do and you meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. If you do that, if you fix your mind, if you fix your heart on those things, as a Christian, you will produce good fruit. Notice we're not talking about if you take certain medications and if you alter certain things in your life. The battle of sanctification, the battle of the Christian walk, begins in between my two ears in my thought life. That's where you have to begin. Now, the heart has one primary function. We've been talking about all these little things the heart does. What is the number one function? What is the number one purpose of your heart? Anybody know? The heart we've been talking about. uh... I'm looking for one word. You're close. Starts with a W. Worship. That's the primary function of your heart everyone's heart worships everyone's heart worships atheist worship they all worship in their heart here's the distinction some worship the one true God from their hearts and some worship idols from their heart they are engaged in a form of idolatry There are people on Sunday morning right now who are going to church and they outwardly show that they're worshiping the one true God but inside they are engaging in an act of idolatry. So that might lead you to the question what are the idols of the heart? How do I know if I'm worshiping an idol? And if I'm worshiping an idol what am I supposed to do about it? Great questions. And if you would like the answer you'll have to come back next week because we're out of time. All right, I've got like seven minutes. What questions do you have? Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. i would- ag- do you do I would agree that they look at that behavior and they see a problem, and to that extent, yeah, they're seeing truth there, yeah, yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. yeah,, yeah, even unbelievers can look at people's behavior and go, that's pretty bad. But they have the completely wrong understanding of why that behavior is occurring. And by the way, their standard for the behavior is totally off. It, behavior is only bad if it's outward. They could care less what's going on in your heart. They could care less what's going on in your thought life. As long as you don't act on it, you're okay. But that's not the standard that God has set. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, morality becomes relative. If you reject God, you, ab- you reject any objective standard of what is right or wrong, then morality becomes a social construct. It's right because society says it's okay, and it's wrong because society says it's wrong. And then society changes, and it just gets worse. If you say I'm a good person, and you, or you say, if I say I'm a good person, but I'm not using Scripture to define it, then all I'm really doing is saying, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. And then he's going to say, well, yeah, you're not as bad as me, but I'm not as bad as that guy. And it leaves some guy at the end of the line pointing at Hitler going, I'm not as bad as him. It's relative. Yes, ma'am. But the truth of Scripture is that they do know how to explain it, but if you have to identify sin in another being, you have to identify sin in yourself. So it's not that they can't explain it. It's Romans. They will not explain it. They're suppressing that. Truth. Right. Remember what the... Yeah, yeah. which is what that one guy said. It's humanistic self-worship. The people who are worshiping themselves don't want to acknowledge that they themselves are the problem. And next week when we talk about idols of the heart, we're going to look at that worship, and we're going to go into some detail about that and what the Bible says about that form of worship. Yes, sir? In what they're doing, uh, I think Galatians 5.20, about the word sorcery there, Mm-hmm. Where we're using really sorcery to deal with these issues, which we should be dealing with in a scriptural manner. Sometimes it requires a spanking, which has become taboo. You know, oh, don't do that. You're going to damage the child. Uh, instead of, instead, we want to do. It, you know, mama's little helper but instead of dealing with it just take a pill and get in you're okay, just tune out yeah. drop out of it so we're dealing with the, so many things like this anymore and, you know, hence the legalization of marijuana and so on and so forth I mean the next step is cocaine and you know. we're from there yeah. you, it's a great point the, the, a lot of times the medication is nothing more than a way to cover the problem And so I don't have to deal with it. If I'm feeling depressed, instead of dealing with what's causing the depression, I just take a pill and I feel better. Uh, If I have a problem paying attention and being respectful to other people by listening, I I don't have to say it's my fault. I don't have to call it sin. I can just take a pill and blame it on something else. Yes, sir. Exactly. Exactly. goes away. And if you look at the guys who take the medication, as soon as they're off the meds, you know, we had kids in our facility. Yeah, we can medicate them and we can get them to behave through medication. As soon as they're outside the facility, they're right back to what they were doing before because the medication did not change their desires. It did not change who they really were. There's, I I need to say this because it's, it's relevant. There are a, there's a slight segment of psychiatry where they have medications that act as chemical handcuffs. There are people that society has not been able to control, and they use medication in very narrow circumstances as a chemical handcuff. In that regard, psychiatry, actual medical doctors, can be useful in that regard but simply using medication to just solve basic sin or trying to manipulate my behavior. It's not useful. It's not useful at all. Okay, we are out of time here. It's 10 o'clock. So uh, if you have any other questions, feel free to come and see me afterwards, and uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had. We ask that you would help us to look to ourselves, to look into our own hearts, to see our sin and not to try to blame other things and other people and things outside of us, that we would see our sin, that we would turn to Christ and turn to the gospel. And we ask that you would bless our time of worship this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.